Jude is the um, next to last book in the Bible. If you're having any trouble finding it, go to Revelation. And then just turn left and uh, do so, you know, calmly. Or else you'll just right past it. Jude. Um, uh, what many uh, pastors and commentators consider to be the, the most neglected book of the Bible. Um, and, uh, and that reality might be indicative, excuse me, that reality might be the reason perhaps why there is so much false teaching in pulpits like this one in the church today. Now, because a book like this one is so neglected. Uh, perhaps... Uh, perhaps if it weren't, there'd be less false teaching. Perhaps it's neglected because the false teachers want to, um, want to essentially have a free reign to spout their nonsense, free of the guardrails, the warnings uh, that a letter like Jude offers to the church. And so we uh, carry on about our business, if you will, ignorant of the danger. Uh, well, we've been studying this book for a number of weeks now. Uh, it seems uh, hard to believe, in fact, uh, that we've managed to squeeze uh, eight sermons already out of these few verses, and there's still several more to come. Um, after a brief greeting in the opening couple of verses, Jude goes on to describe the characteristics of false teachers in verses 5 through 16. And then he shifts language, uh, a, a sharp turn, if you will, in verse 17. Uh, to what we are to do with this information. It's one thing to know that there are false teachers all over uh, having invaded the church, in many cases having taken over church denominations, seminaries, institutions, and so on. Uh, It's another thing entirely to know what to do with that information. And so that is what we come to in verse 17. And so let's pick it up there and read through to verse 23. Uh, But you, that is you, church, in contrast to these false teachers, you, in response to the presence of these false teachers, you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, that is, that is cherished in God. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we ask that you would make clear to us that which is ancient and unfamiliar, um, that which was spoken um, by uh, by a man many years ago to an audience many years ago who lived very different lives than we live with very different experiences and educations and familiarities. Help us to take that which is ancient and timeless, being your word, Um, and understand it through the lens into which it was spoken, uh, but then also apply it uh, to this day and age in which we live. 
Uh, that is no small feat. This is an old book, um, and it is the inspired word of God. And so it is um, rightly a challenging task to discern what you have to teach us. Um, oversimplification is the death of good doctrine. And so, Lord, help us to understand, not to seek the simplest reduction, but give us minds that both yearn for clarity and insight, but also minds that are capable of grasping the mysteries of God, which are too great for us in our sinful, fallen state. Help us accordingly, we beg of you today. In Christ's name, we pray all these things. Amen. You may be seated. Today is September the 10th, right? Uh, A bit of an ominous day in our nation's history. 22 years ago tomorrow, um, radical Muslim terrorists crashed airplanes, specifically and firstly into the World Trade Center in New York and then... uh, Beyond that, into other places, one of them crashed into the Pentagon. Another one was taken down by some brave civilians who refused to go quietly while the terrorists who had taken the plane and killed the pilots um, carried their vessel to the next target. If you're over the age of 30, you probably remember the moment you were first alerted to the news of these attacks. You probably distinctly remember where you were, what you were doing, perhaps what you were wearing. I can, I can envision personally the face of my uh, college buddy who came bursting into my room. You know, I was in California, so everything was happening three hours later. Uh, and, uh, and he told me to turn on my uh, alarm clock radio because that was the best of the technology that we had at the time, Okay. Uh, turn on your radio, someone bombed the World Trade Center. First of all, I didn't know what was happening or what day it was because I was asleep, you know? I was like my boys this morning, you know, in the bed, just out. I'm like, guys, we got to go to church. Let's go, you know? Uh, but I, I can distinctly remember his, his face. His name was Jared. And um, I remember the sheets, you know, like the plaid color of my sheets, I remember the red illuminated numbers on my alarm clock, right? A generation before me would remember the same detail about the day Reagan was, um, or uh, Kennedy was assassinated, right? Um, And so, again, if you're my age or anywhere thereabouts, you probably remember where you were. And for most of us, that was the moment when the word terrorism entered our vocabulary, along with the very notion of someone being a terrorist. It was, we all learned a new word that day. Since then, our nation has become sensitized, aware, proactive. Maybe not enough, right? But certainly things changed. Air travel is a lot less fun uh, after 9-11, Um, our nation has become proactive and aware and if you will sensitized again to the presence the existence of terrorists 
Jude, if you will, is a, a letter written to the church compelling us to wake up to the reality of spiritual terrorists among us. These individuals disrupt, deceive, and devour the church. These individuals under the direction of Satan are like spiritual suicide bombers, determined to take as many innocent victims with them as possible into their deception and thus into the fires of hell out of which we are compelled to snatch them by Jude in verse 23. In Acts chapter 20, some some 20 years, perhaps, before Jude wrote this letter, Paul predicted the arrival of these spiritual terrorists coming up from within the ranks of the church. Not attacking from the outside, but coming from within. Hijacking, if you will. Not airplanes, but pulpits. Peter, whose letter... Uh, both precedes Jude in the order of our printing. It also precedes Jude in the order of being written. Peter predicted these men would come, these spiritual terrorists. Jesus, about 60, maybe 50 years before Jude wrote this letter, Jesus himself predicted wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. They will infiltrate and so Jude is, if you will, saying, Jesus said they're coming. Paul said they would come. Peter warned that they're on their way. Jude is saying, friends, they're here. They have arrived. In fact, Jude alerts the church saying, I wanted to write you a letter that was like warm and fuzzy. It was like celebrating our salvation, celebrating the goodness of our salvation who is in Christ, right? I mean, we could just read it. Though I was very eager, verse 3, to write to you about our common salvation. Oh, I would have liked to have read that letter by Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, about what? What would Jude say about our common salvation? The way that he relies on and leans into the Old Testament text and narratives of the Hebrews, and then how might he then speak, you know, loquaciously about our common salvation? He says, but instead, I found it necessary to write to you something entirely different appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend for it, fight for it, defend it. Why? For, verse four, because certain people have crept in unnoticed, perverting the gospel. And so over the past weeks, the, uh, eight weeks now, we've been examining this letter, the examples of these men in church history, both ancient, middle times, and modern times, these spiritual terrorists, and we are now left with the one question, what do we do with this information? Last week, we noted three words, remember, right? But you must remember, verse 17, 
identify, verse 19, it is these who cause divisions. They're worldly. That means they are natural, and they're devoid of the Spirit. So remember the warnings. Identify these men, and then persevere. Persevere. You, beloved, verse 20, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. It's on the heading of most of your Bibles. If you're reading the ESV text like I am, over that, there's a subheading over this section, a call to persevere. And that's where we paused last week. That's where we stopped and said we're out of time. And we were more than out of time. Remember, identify, and persevere. And so this morning, as we continue our explanation of these verses, there are three implied characteristics about the church. Three implied characteristics about the church that we can note. The first of which is the perseverance of the saints. The perseverance of the saints. This is a call to action part two. That would be the first slide that comes up. And then the next slide that would come up is number one, the perseverance of the saints. See, there it is. Told you. Sometimes it's not them not paying attention. They really, sometimes the computer just gets buggy. So sometimes I kind of like, I kind of make a joke at those guys' expense and it's not fair. So I just want to say that publicly. A lot of times it's just like, they don't, they're like, I don't know, I pushed the button, nothing happened. And they're young. They should know how to use this stuff, right? Anyway. (laughs) To persevere is to continue in a course of action even in the face of difficulty or with little or no prospect of success. Jesus said in Matthew 5 that you are the salt of the earth. The salt stems the spiritual decay of the earth. And when you read in your news feed and when you're advertised to by various companies, when you consider the ESG rating that BlackRock and others imply, impose onto church, onto businesses, um, when you consider the prevalence of uh, quote-unquote real medical doctors affirming the transitioning of children from male to female and female to male through the injection of artificial hormones in order to, quote-unquote, affirm their gender identity. And what you realize what they're doing is they're actually chemically castrating these children at a time when they're confused and far too young to understand the ramifications of this decision. When you examine things like this, which is just the tip of the iceberg, friends, you think, what on earth, how can this salt preserve that decay? To persevere is to continue in a course of action, even in the face of difficulty or with little or no prospect of success. Who are we? little church family, in the face of such tremendous and overwhelming, depressing, maybe even, spiritual decay. Who are we? It matters not who we are, right? Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. What is it? We are to persevere, to continue in a course of action, even in the face of difficulty or with little or no prospect of success. What does it mean to persevere, though? Okay, I'm willing to persevere. I'm willing to, quote-unquote, be the salt. 
I'm not going to say quote unquote anymore. I've already done it like four times. I'm willing to be the salt to stem the spiritual decay, but what does that mean? Well, the heart of Jude's exhortation. If there is one walking away point that Jude makes explicitly clear, it's this from this phrase in verse 21 keep yourselves in the love of God. Uh, Mike King, one of our deacons, he sent to me a, a link this week, and it's this gentleman, he does uh, a book in an hour. He teaches through a single book of the Bible in a one-hour lecture. Now, before you start going to, like, find his church, all right, <laughs> just want you to settle down, okay? If I were to do Jude in an hour which we may do at the end of this, because who wants to move on from this warm, you know, enriching text? If I were to do a summary, the single walking away point is this, keep yourselves in the love of God. So what does it mean to persevere? Jude defines it for us, keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, we ask the next natural question that any good Bible student would ask, well, what does that mean? How do I do that? Well, Romans chapter 8, turn with me if you will, please. Beginning in verse 28, I want to read to you some probably familiar for many of you, but fantastic verses. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? What things? This very good news. If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. 
Yeah. Right? Let me just listen to this brief list. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. His hand is strong enough to keep you. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Excuse me, I already read that one. No one can bring a charge against you. You are innocent in Christ. Nothing is outside his providential oversight. Neither health crisis, nor economic downturn, nor COVID lockdowns, nor government tyranny, nor the tragic and sudden loss of a loved one. Nothing is wasted by God. He's working all things for your good. You might even say, especially hardship. And all who are saved will be glorified, which is to say that we will die in these fleshy bodies, but we are promised resurrection into a new body suited for eternal and intimate peace with God. Now, friends, just reading that scripture and hearing that, doesn't it boost your spirit? No wonder we're told in Hebrews 10, as Lorve read this morning in Sunday school, to, to encourage one another with these things, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Steve Lawson says the faith that God gives is a preserving, a persevering faith. A believer may stumble and fall, but will never fall away. No true believer will ever become an unbeliever. Friends, the perseverance of the saints is an ongoing reality for the redeemed. It's not a list of requirements to earn God's favor. And while God's providential preservation of us is out of our hands, his call for us to persevere is not passive. It is, if you will, two sides of the same coin. So how do we persevere? Well, first of all, we find ourselves wrapped in the promises of Romans 8, 28 through 39. That is an ongoing spiritual reality that is on you, Christian. And then you turn that coin over, and what does it say? Stay the course. Persevere. God's love is pictured by Jude as a realm or an area that believers listen must actively seek to remain within. Really and truly, this is the overarching instruction. Back to Jude. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Not that you keep yourself saved. That is the work of God. This is what Paul confronted in Galatians, where he said, can what, begun, can what was begun in the Spirit be perfected in the flesh? By no means. Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Not that you keep yourself saved, but you keep yourself in the love of God. How do you persevere? How do you keep yourself in the love of God? Wrap yourself in Romans 8, 28 through 39, and then turn over the corner and charge forward. You can be persistent. God gave you a will. A will that you exercise for temporal gain all the time. God gave you a will that you exercise to gain muscle mass, men. To gain career status. He gave you a will that you use and you exercise to preserve your reputation or to build a reputation. You refuse to go back on your word. Why? Because that would hurt your reputation. You have a will and you exert that will. 
Are you saying that you don't have any willpower to be persistent in spiritual things, church? I sure hope not. So that brings us to the second characteristic. There is the perseverance of the saints, but there is also the persistence of the saints. It is God who preserves you, and it is the same God who calls on you to persevere. That is to be persistent. This is not passive. Build yourselves up. This is the edification of the word. It's in the second Peter. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Take care. But instead, very next verse, this is 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Study the scriptures. Friends, men, especially, the devil doesn't want you to study your Bible. The devil doesn't want you to lead your family well. The devil doesn't want you to catechize your kids The devil doesn't want you to get up and be a godly example of discipline and training for your children. And so he's going to do everything to make that seem incredibly hard. The devil doesn't want you to grab your wife's hand and say, let's pray. He's going to give us every reason for that to feel awkward and strange and for us to feel inept and incapable. You're going to sit down with the Bible at night with your kids and you're going to read it and they're going to go, Dad, what's that about? And you're going to say, I don't know. And you know what? I'm not doing this tomorrow night because I'm embarrassed and I'm stupid, right? Why is it so hard? Why do we feel so weird to say, let's pray? Why do we wait for our wives to say, honey, let's pray together? What's wrong with us? I'll tell you what's wrong. The devil doesn't want you to do it. So he makes it hard, makes it awkward. And I've spoken to too many men. I've been a pastor for 15 years. I've spoken to too many men who are 60 years old and they regret the season of life that they had with their children because they didn't do this. It was hard. The devil didn't want you to do it, and it was hard, and then you didn't, and then you regret it. And I want every 60-plus-year-old man in this room that understands that and who lived that to speak to every younger man in this room who's still raising his family and say, yes, listen to the pastor, learn from my mistakes. The devil doesn't want you to do it, but don't sit where I'm sitting 30 years from now with regret. Don't do it. And so when we go outside, I better overhear some conversations. I'm just saying. About to turn into a Baptist preacher here for a minute. I got I to gotta gain 50 more pounds before I really get there. There's a fine line, men, um, between falling into a trap of legalism 
where we're trying to earn God's favor and we're trying to climb a ladder of, of spirituality by our own like, you know, white knuckled, gritting teeth trying to do it and not falling into that trap. But there's a fine line between that and the spiritual apathy that plagues too many Christian families. And it starts with dad. I won't claim to know exactly what that, that fine line is. I would say it's a tightrope and you gotta constantly feel yourself falling to one direction or the other and just catch yourself each time and just beg for God's help. But stop giving in. You know, church, I need you to understand something. I'm sitting, I'm sitting in the pew with you. You see, you, you see we're, we're learning and growing together. I'm sitting in the pew with you. I'm not lecturing you. The Spirit is lecturing us. Stop giving in to the devil's temptations to not get up and read your scriptures, to turn over, to hit the snooze button, to be, as Vody Bauckham says, defeated by your sheets. That's good, right? You have enough willpower to eat right, to exercise, to go to work, to work hard, to preserve your reputation, to climb the career ladder. You got enough willpower to do all that stuff, and all that's going to burn. We can do this, men. This is not a, a spiritual slap in the face. It's a call to action. And I don't know about you, but every time when I was a young man and I was called to action, whether it was by my own dad raising me or by a boss who was challenging me to stop being late, stop making excuses, professors telling me, I don't care, you don't have more time, it's due today. You're called to action, you're called to step up. I was always mad at first and then glad in the end. And so I might make you mad but you'll be glad in the end. It's a call to action. And we're all glad when we respond. Ladies, uh, I would say, um, you know, I would, I'd say, you know, this isn't just one-sided or whatever, but I think you're all glad that I talked to your husband, so I'm not gonna bother, right? <laughs> you're all amazing. How's that? Build yourselves up. Alistair says, we, we are not called to snack on the scriptures, but to feast on them. But build yourselves up specifically on the foundation of Christ. Look at this. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Look at verse 20. You, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. This is the language of building, critically on top of an existing foundation. The foundation laid by Jesus and by his commission, the apostles. Paul used this same term, build, epidokomeo, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I've already decided that I'm not finishing the sermon I intended to preach today, so we're going for it all the way. I wrote you a, a letter on Thursday night and it went out in your email Friday morning. And then between Friday and this morning, it was like, nope, we got to do this. 
According to the grace, this is 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. This isn't written to pastors. This is written to husbands and individuals and single moms and widows and retirees. This is written to the church. 4, verse 11, No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Take care how you build. See, I want you to understand the analogy Paul's making here, friends. you're a Christian parent and you're passively discipling your children, you're building, if you will, a house of straw on the foundation of Christ. It might be true. It might be on the foundation, but it's weak. Uh, Leslie shared with me something this, um, this week. Uh, Hudson Taylor. He moved to China at, at the age of 21. And by that time, and, and he did so to, to plant churches, to spread the gospel. And by that time, he had like a degree, he could speak multiple languages, and he was 21. And then he gave his life to, to evangelize Chinese people. I'm sorry, friends, but too many of our 21-year-olds are acting a fool. Too many of us at 21 were acting a fool, and we're saying, well, they're just kids. They'll grow up eventually. The, the, the frontal cortex isn't even fully developed until they're 25. I know that. I was an idiot until I was 26. And then I was like a, a newborn baby chick who was just figuring out how to not be an idiot for the next five years, okay? But friends, what are we building into the minds and hearts of our young people? If Hudson Taylor can learn multiple languages and move to China and give his life to the mission by 21, surely we can get our kids off their Kindles and smartphones for 10 minutes and learn a catechism question. Are we going to build a house of straw or are we going to build a house on the foundation of Jesus Christ of gold and silver and precious metals? In the end, friends, the Lord will test it. Okay? The Lord will test it. If the work, verse 14, that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. See, friends, back to Jude, part of the problem with false teachers is that they abandon the foundation of truth, but they build adjacent to the truth, and this makes them hard to identify, especially by the immature and the undiscerning. 
And those are not slanderous descriptions of those who get caught up in the web of deception. They're merely objective observations. Many of us got caught up in the attractional church movement or what's called the seeker-sensitive church movement. We were undiscerning of the error upon which it was built. It's built on a different foundation than Jesus Christ. The Bible says no one seeks God. No one's looking for him. The Holy Spirit draws us. And if the Holy Spirit hasn't drawn us, we cannot reach out for God. That's scripture, and it's black and white. It's not even that hard to find or understand. And an entire church movement is built on the exact opposite of that as a premise to reach the world. Right? How thick-headed are we? Friends, we were simply undiscerning and immature. A foundation was built on something other than the truth, but it was built adjacent to the truth. We hadn't spent enough time at that point reading Jude. Now, some pastors at the time, this would have been the late 80s or early 90s, some pastors at the time wearing ties and singing hymns were decrying the movement, but they sounded to us like stodgy old stick-in-the-muds. They were discerning. We were not. But as we grew in the Lord, we became more spiritually aware or mature to the reality of the error of this ideology that is still so pervasive in the church in America. What are we to do? What are we to do now? We are to be persistent in training and righteousness. Build yourselves up, not on ideas, but on your most holy faith. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Second, praying in the Spirit. The persistence includes a study of the Scriptures that, that, that brings clarity of mind. It builds discernment. There is no such thing as a discerning, immature Christian. Maturity in Christ breeds discernment. Discernment allows you to see through the facades of what is true and what is halfway true. So you go from from a, a persistent insistence upon building into yourself, pounding into your heart and mind the word, pounding into the minds of your wife and your children, men, the word of God, and then you follow that up by praying in the spirit. Remember, this is inverted in the text in in. Ephesians, or excuse me, in the ESV. Verse 20, but you, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy. The instruction is verse 21a, keep yourselves. The how is build yourself, pray, and wait for the mercy. And so the second aspect of of keeping yourself in the love of God, the persistence that it's required is to pray in the Spirit. I hate when the Bible says things like pray in the Spirit. And I say that a bit tongue-in-cheek and very carefully, but I'm, I, I want you to understand, I'm not unlike you. I, I, I come to a phrase like that, and I go, well, what does that mean? I pray with my mouth, but my mouth is fleshly. I pray with my words, but my words are earthly. I pray with my mind, but my mind is fallen and stained 
and tainted and often distracted? What does it mean to pray in the Spirit? Now, friends, it's an entire sermon all in of itself. But if I could offer just a couple of verses that bring clarity. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. No, 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 I'm asking how. Well, the how is to keep going. <laughs> all the time. All the time, all the time, all the time. I love the story of Nehemiah where he's, uh, he had been praying for, for months about the, the plight of his homeland. The walls of Jerusalem were still in shambles and it broke his heart. I mean, it's kind of like Coolwood natives, you know, when we saw the playground and the pool and it was just breaking down and things were broken and they were old and they were rusty and it was, oh, just barely. And what, did, what, did it hap- what happened to us? People, we said, oh, it breaks my heart. It's a, it's a joy to see the infusion of life and support happening in Coolwood. Nehemiah is, is feeling that way about Jerusalem, 600 miles away, his hometown. He hears that the walls are broken down. The few people who are living there are oppressed, and they're constantly being attacked by neighbors who hate them and wish for them to simply cease to exist because they're Jewish. And he's praying, and he's praying for months and months, and then he stands up. He's the He's the, I think he's the cupbearer for the king. I should know. I taught this. He does something at the right hand of the king. I think he tastes his drinks for him. And the king says, what's, what's up with you, Nehemiah? I've never seen you in all your years of service. You've never come to me and been in my presence with a sunken face with a shallow expression, like grief, deep grief is in your eyes and in your bones. And Nehemiah gets afraid because you don't come in the presence of the king looking sullen and sad. And Nehemiah says, long live the king, (laughs) right? (laughs) And then Nehemiah gives us a little window into what happens in his spirit. And he says, and so I just like fired this little arrow prayer up to the Lord in the moment, believing the Lord had answered my prayers for an opportunity to speak to the king. And I said, oh king, why wouldn't I be? Why wouldn't I be in distress when my homeland is in ruins? That's praying without ceasing. He had been praying, he had been praying, and in the middle of a conversation with the most important man in the world, he's still praying. What does it mean to pray in the Spirit? Well, that's certainly it. Jeremiah 33, recent Spurgeon devotional referenced this one, call to me and I will answer you and will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. Oh, friends. Oh, friends. What is our shallow prayer life keeping us from knowing? What great Hidden things do you not know today simply because of a shallow development of a prayer life? We should all mourn the loss of time spent with God in prayer where he might do as he spoke through the prophet Jeremiah. I will tell you great and hidden things. Spurgeon says, if you would reach to something higher than that ordinary groveling experience that is in prayer, 
Look to the rock that is higher than you and gaze with the eye of faith through the window of consistent prayer. When you open the window on your side, it will not be bolted on the other. (laughs) Come on, Spurge. Don't know how to pray? You're telling me pray in the Spirit, pray all the time, pray like Spurgeon was talking about, a window that's not bolted. If you don't know how to pray, we have books in the library, one little one called Do You Pray? It's Fantastic by J.C. Ryle. It's not a bookstore, it's a library. That means it's free. You check it out, you take it home, you bring it back. There's nothing hindering you from learning except your own spiritual apathy. Beyond that, get into a D group. There, a mentor who has developed habits and practices of prayer will teach you. Be proactive. But pray in the Spirit is also to, to pray in reverence. Jesus isn't your bro. I heard, a, I heard a pastor once, and I guess he was trying to be relatable and youthful, and he just sounded dumb. He was like, man, Jesus, man, you know? And I was, I, I remember, and I thought, dude, if you were standing in the presence of Jesus, you'd be on your face. You'd be using the most respectful, reverent language that you could come up with. Yes, we are called to boldly approach the throne of grace like a toddler who's too dumb to know any better, and he just runs into the throne room of the king, and he just plants himself on his dad. Yes, but man, Jesus isn't your bro. He is the king of creation, yet he calls you friend. And so, what's, what's the application? Talk to him. Really. He's not a genie waiting to grant your wishes, but he does call on us to cast our cares on him. Paul offers the antidote to anxiety, prayer with thanksgiving. But listen, a prayer life that is only developed to ease your burden will always be shallow. We must grow beyond that in prayer, learning to pray in such a way that our thoughts are being aligned to the mind of Christ. His goals become our goals. His ambitions become our ambitions. His kingdom is our preoccupation. This is where we stop praying before meals. Lord, bless this meal to my body. And we start praying, Lord, may we bless you as we enjoy what you've given to us. You already fed us so much, we're all overweight anyway, and now, oh, bless it to my body. Shut up. Stop. Why did the scriptures don't say that? The scriptures say, bless the Lord, oh, my soul, and all that is within me. Oh, Lord, may the joy that I receive in the eating of this meal with my family, my church family that you gave to me as a gift, as I enjoy these good gifts, may I worship you in thanksgiving for what you've given to me. He's already blessed you. Stop asking him to bless your your McDonald's and stuff. It's bad. His kingdom is our preoccupation. You see, that's when our prayer life changes. His kingdom becomes our preoccupation. Only then are we truly free of the anxieties that entangle us and the burdens that weigh us down. It's a remarkable dichotomy, really. 
Praying in the Spirit is to pray selflessly, and yet in the end, we benefit supernaturally. Well, the last thing on this, build yourself up. Pray in the Spirit. Let us note that our spiritual growth is not passive. I said this already, so I won't get into this. It is a miracle that we can grow in Christ's likeness, but it's not passive. Richard Foster in The Celebration of Discipline, a book I highly recommend. Uh, It's in the library. It's in the library. It's in the library. The recording won't know that I just checked my wife. Is it in the library? Yeah, it's in the library. In that book, Richard Foster, um, he compares your spiritual growth to like a field being overseen by your will, who is the farmer. Your spiritual heart, your spiritual life is the field, and the farmer is your will, your persistence. And, and Foster says it like this. He says, it's always a miracle when the crop grows. It's always God that makes the crop grow. The farmer, try as he might, he can strain, he can sweat, he can, he can't make the seed germinate and grow into a plant that will produce a yield. He can't do it. It's always a miracle of God and God alone. Your spiritual growth is a miracle of God's grace, every inch of it. But, as Foster points out, there are disciplines that are the exercise of your will that are like cutting rows, planting seeds, weeding out the weeds, driving out the critters, even perhaps irrigating that field with the water of the word. Your spiritual growth is always a miracle of God but he has called on us to be persistent, to keep yourselves, build yourself. The farmer who sits and waits for the harvest to grow, which he has not planted, nor weeded, nor watered, nor protected, will starve to death. Church, if you are in Christ, your spirit is fertile ground. God has given you his word plant it. He's given you shepherds. Heed their instruction. He's given you a mind. Use it. He's given you a will. Apply it. Parents, he's given you children. Till the soil of their hearts. Plant the good seed. Water it with the word. But don't be surprised when your family or your own heart is a spiritual valley of dust if you neglect these things. Mourn and weep, repent and leave this place determined to change course by the grace and mercy of God. Be persistent, build yourself up, pray in the spirit and then we wait on the mercy of Jesus. And this is where we, where we pause for today. This is number three. There is the perseverance of the saints, there is the persistence of the saints and then there is the mercy of the saints. Not that we are merciful per se, but it is the mercy that we are given, that we possess. Jude literally defines the church here. Verse 21, 
waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. This is essentially who you are. What does it mean to be a Christian? That's a good answer. We are those waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. I do not think that there could be a more apt description of the church. We are those waiting on Jesus' mercy. Well, if I hadn't already tortured the children's ministry workers like 10 times in a row, we would go on for the 30 minutes, man, because I'm hot right now. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to keep going. But for everyone's sake, we'll, we'll pause there. And we'll pick up this discussion in two weeks about the mercy of God. Well, it's the mercy that leads to eternal life. And there's a lot of talk in the scriptures about the last day. On the last day, we enter into the beginning of eternal life. What happens on the last day? Zephaniah is all about the day of the Lord. Revelation is, if you will, the greatest expansion of that, the day of the Lord. But the scriptures are replete, Old and New Testament alike, with predictions about the last day. I heard a statistic that for every one prophecy related to Jesus' birth, there's eight for his second coming, the day of the Lord. On that day, we're going to sing a great song in a couple of weeks. On that day, we will see you shining brighter than the sun. And that's great, because we, the church, will see him shining brighter than the sun. It will be a day of great joy. And for the wicked, they will see him with a sword in his mouth. Because on that great day is a day of judgment. It's the day when God's wrath finally says to the evil of this world, enough. And so Christian, visitor, stranger, friend, what will we see on that last day? What will you see on that last day? Will you see him as the merciful Savior shining brighter than the sun because you have repented, you have determined to chart the course in the footsteps of Jesus. He is your Lord and Savior by grace through faith. Is that you? On that day, you will see him shining brighter than the sun. But oh, dear friend, that will be a great and terrible day if not. Thanks be to God, we are those who are waiting on that day to receive not his wrath in judgment, but we're waiting for his mercy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. 
Thank you for the truth that's found in it. Thank you for the challenge that your scripture gives to us. Thank you that we can examine just a handful of verses together and be um, exhorted onward, forward, upward. But we also thank you that these things are all ultimately not for us, but rather that you seek to make us into sharp tools for your use. And that's what we'll see in a couple of weeks. As those who are mercifully waiting for the day, waiting to see your mercy, we are also those who are used by you to snatch others out of the fire so that they too may be counted among those waiting for your mercy as opposed to those awaiting your judgment. Help us to relish and embrace that terrible and awesome calling, but help us to be persistent in growing in grace in the meantime for the sake of being a sharp tool in your hand, for Christ's sake, amen. Let's stand together and celebrate um, what we will wait for that was accomplished at the cross.